We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. All right, how's it going? That was the voice of Patagonia's Yvonne Chouinard, and this is Type 2, a podcast from Looking Sideways in association with Patagonia that explores the intersection between outdoors, action sports, and activism. In each show, I've been meeting people who are using their passion and involvement with the cultures we all love to create change. We've been discussing the issues they're involved in, the change they're seeking to create, the difficulties involved and the rewards that follow. You can find each episode on all the usual podcast platforms. Wherever you're listening, make sure you hit subscribe so you can get each episode as it's released. Now, my guest this week is the great Len Nesifer, well, Dr. Len, to be precise. Len's a professor at the University of Arizona. He's CEO of Natives Outdoors, a board member at the Honold Foundation and also the American Alpine Club. Yep, he's pretty busy, Len, and it's a breadth of experience that's given him a very intriguing and insightful approach to activism and an intersectional take on the issues we currently face. Len is of mixed Navajo and European heritage, and his work is primarily focused, as the bio for Natives Outdoors puts it, on empowering Native and Indigenous communities for a sustainable world. Through his work and various outlets, Len is helping to bridge the gap that exists between the Indigenous take on the outdoors and that classic white Western approach we're all very used to, which after all can come with attendant colonial connotations, let's just put it that way. From speaking to Len, I think it's important to realise he's a consensus builder, someone who's concerned with inclusivity and opening doors rather than enforcing entrenched positions. For Len, humour is a tool and dogmatism, whatever your political leaning, is to be avoided. I mean, take a look at his singular Instagram account through which he uses some frankly exemplary meme skills to explore these issues for proof of that. Really, really enjoyed this one. Len is a warm, thoughtful and very, very interesting character. He's got a lot of uh, original thinking on this topic and uh, yeah, very much enjoyed it. I'll be back at the end, but in the meantime, here's me and Len. Enjoy. So that is that, is that you done then? Done. Yeah, so, it's like for at least for f- a few weeks and then the insanity starts again. But yeah, I'm a nice. professor in my day job, so that's why. Yeah. So what's the plan? What are you going to do? Uh, well, if the snow ever comes, I'm going to go north to Colorado and um, try to relearn how to ski um, like I do every season. So that'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that feels uh yeah god snowboarding that feels like it's probably quite far away for me really um, be interesting yeah. be interesting to see how that goes again yeah i actually watched your episode of the 50 the other day with cody oh right on yeah yeah i was i I, re- I really like that show i've sort of weirdly become addicted to that show it's um very good lockdown viewing just bang one of those on for 20 minutes exactly yeah that was a fun one it totally came up by chance and cody emailed me to my work email my professor email 
And I said, this is bizarre. <laughs> uh, but he reached out about wanting to ski this particular line. And I've looked at it before outside of Moab. It's a, just a phenomenal peak, you know, it just sits out in the middle of the desert. Um, but I uh, just, we had just brought on a new athlete, Connor, who you saw. Yeah. And um, I didn't, I kind of told him, it's like, hey, Cody wants to go ski a thing in Moab. I didn't really tell him what we were doing because I didn't want it to like get in his head. So right. He shows up. He shows up and he's like, "What's this camera for?" And I'm like, "Well, we're doing this an episode of the 50." And he's like, "Why didn't you tell me?" Threw threw him in there. Threw him in the deep end. Threw him in there. It totally threw him in the deep end. It looked like it was in the middle of, like that range doesn't look like the rest of the peaks that he's doing in that in that mission. You know, whereas like they're in the middle of like the Tetons, like the Rockies. It looked like it was kind of basically quite like standalone is that right yeah it is it's um there's a couple range. this is southeastern utah near the four corners of the united states there's you know when you're on top of the peak you can see the colorado rocky mountains right um, and they're, they're just you know about an hour's drive away um but that particular peak um yeah the, they're pretty much the only thing standing up there out there um and it, they literally rise out of the Red Rock Desert. So you saw that shot where, you know, looking down, you just see that Red Rock expanse. And um, yeah, it looks amazing. Look, look it's amazing. Really, really beautiful. Yeah. And the skiing was, you know, not particularly hard. But um, I think what makes that a classic line is, is, um, you know, the, what, that that mountain, the view, and just kind of like you're, it's, it just seems impossible um, to be yeah. skiing in the desert like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's one of the things I really like about that show, the fact that it's the skiing is often really not great. You know, it's proper type two fun, isn't it? And um, Yeah. But that's all That's all sort of almost part of the, the charm of it, really, like the adventure of it. Yeah, yeah, right. it's great. So you, you mentioned, um, you said you, you just took, we just took on an athlete. So is that through Native Outdoors? Yeah, that is. Yeah, so that was Connor and Connery, whatever his name was in the film. <laughs> yeah so and so basically you do you've got apart from the memes which i'm sure we'll get to you've got um you've got two things going on you've got the, your day job as you mentioned you're your university of arizona is that right that's right yep uh and then you and then you're behind native outdoors as well that's right yeah and then it looks like you're also super busy with things like the honold foundation and you know lots of other it seems like you've got a lot a lot of different irons in the fire let's say Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm on the board for the American Alpine Club and the Honold Foundation. Um, so that's been great. But, yeah, it's it's busy. It definitely lots of structured and scheduling. Um, but I think at the end of the day, like, the a lot of the work overlaps and serves each other. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm simply just trying to create more opportunity for Native folks in the outdoor industry. And so the company is one way to do that. The other is on the on the... Uh, education side, you know, teaching about natural resource policy, recreation, and then the the board work and very much is is serving that as well. So there's a lot of overlap, I would say, in my work. So right. So was was the outdoors an interest that you had when you were a kid? Like, do you grew up basically into this whole skiing, climbing? You do a lot of cycling as well, right? So yeah. Was this something that when you when you were growing up, you were you were passionate about? Um, I would say the cycling was <laughs> interesting story. I was a very competitive golfer up until I was about 18. So I was, oh, really? I was cycling and golfing and I was living in Kansas. My dad, um, 
my dad uh, was a pretty big cyclist in his day. Um, he like rode from Seattle to Baja back in the mid 70s. So long, long ride. And um, so he was keen on keeping me, you know, at least teaching me how to ride from an early age. Um, but he was a surfer for a good chunk of that early part of the seventies and lived in a van and did that. So, you know, for him, you know, I've taken a lot from him in the sense of just, you know, always at the end of the day is get outside, play, spend some time outside. It's good for your head. Um, and my mom, um, you know, she's comes from a family in which, uh, we're traditional novel healers. And so, um, you know, I spent a lot of time outside with my grandpa collecting herbs, planting, herding sheep, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of the, that was the synergy is like I had those two threads come together. And so in the summers I'd be out West, you know, with my family. And then when I was back in Kansas, um, you know, we'd be riding bikes and doing that thing and golfing. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's definitely two different cultural lenses through which to experience the outdoors then essentially. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. Cause I guess that's what I'm interested in the, the, the way that you've kind of reconciled, you know, you mentioned you know, that you want to use your platforms to explore the native experience in the outdoors and perhaps cause, cause obviously the, the way that most, most people experience the outdoors is through, is through a pretty traditionally Western lens, isn't it really? Mm -hmm. So at what point did you start to think you could, that was something that you wanted to address? Um, I think it was, it came in large part because I was pretty unhappy with the job I had at the time. So I, uh, the Instagram, I mean, Natives Outdoors originally started as an Instagram account. It's since evolved into, you know, we do media work, we do product, we do some consulting. Um, and, uh, but I, I remember I was sitting in a conference in some Las Vegas casino, um, with a bunch of other government folks. I was working with the Department of Energy at the time and I just... I was wearing a suit. <laughs> I just kind of was thinking, man, I wish I wish I could go out to Red Rocks right now, um, but I'm going to be here stuck here all day. And I just I kept thinking there has to be a way to do something different. Um, so that was part of it. And the other part of it, I was living in Colorado and, um, you know, I was climbing. I was learning how to ski at that point. Um, and I just I, I don't know. I just I had to I had to have these conversations with my um, family and community about, uh, you know, what I was doing. Cause so much of the sports I was doing was unrelatable. And I got the feedback of folks saying like, well, that's what white people do. And I was like, well, I'm doing it and I'm not, you know, I'm native. So there, like, there's a disconnect. Um, but I, I, uh, I saw it as an opportunity to build community. Um, I, I knew that there was other people out there doing that. I'm pretty sure that they were on their own islands as well. And so I created that initially just to share stories and photos and then what we began seeing is that there is an increasing conversation to um you know diversify the outdoors and then there's some stuff around cultural appropriation in this country and so we kind of took a dive into that and it's um i don't know at the end of the day we're just kind of doing our thing sharing the stories and if folks want to join along that's totally cool so yeah it's interesting isn't it that this the idea that um it's 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 activities for a particular demographic or people from a cultural background but it is it is a real thing isn't it you know like it is basically if you are i mean it's the same in this country like we've had a we've had a debate in this country this quite recently this year um because there was a report 
that was brought out which basically said that there needed to be more encouragement for people from uh, a non-white background to, to experience the outdoors to experience like the national parks and the back the backlash was from people that are very comfortable in that environment you know essentially white people was was vociferous you know it was like this isn't this isn't real you're like putting identity politics in this in this area like the outdoors is open for everybody and you know like and it seemed I was very surprised at that kind of response because it kind of seems self-evident that they are predominantly. I mean, I'm just talking about my experience in this country. They are predominantly pretty white activities, um, and it sounds like there's something quite similar from what your, you know, from what you, you said that your some of your family members were saying, like, well, almost essentially, that's just not what we do, kind of thing. You know, so is is it is it a similar situation over there that that it's seen as activities for certain people from a certain background and demographic and you know that's part of the part of what you're doing to try and change that to make it more um open to people from different backgrounds yeah i would say it's kind of a it's a two-way perception gap you know i think in um i was telling cody that that's probably the first native centered ski film ever made um as far as i'm aware which is um, which is and, wild isn't it you know but part really? of that part of that particular part of that particular experience was just, uh, um, you know, in, in bridging the gap with Cody's experience because Cody's, you know, very well respected and well known. And, um, and, and, and for that particular trip, we just gave him sort of our glasses or, you know, uh, for a day and he got to see the world through our perspective. And, and at the end of the day, that's, you know, normalizing, um, and sort of making our cultures relatable and more understandable to the broader user group is important because it, at the end of the day, it makes our work a lot easier. Um, but on the flip side of it, you know, in our own communities, um, there's, uh, the, these activities have to fit within the cultures that we come from. And so, you know, in a lot of Connor and I's work, um, you know, so much of how we relate culturally, how we relate to mountains is that they're very spiritual and important things. But in our practices, no one has really combined those two or like created the sort of pathway for people to combine the cultural uh, and spiritual elements of this with the sport. And, um, you know, and I think in our own way, that's how we're engaging that conversations on both sides. And at least just trying, sure. just trying to make it easier for both groups to like figure it out. Is there also... Because you mentioned, you know, the the traditional, um, I think you used the word spiritual, like way that you're that, that culturally um, to to be in that mountain environment. I guess what I was what I was asking was in, you know, in the West, like if you look at the the relatively recent history of alpinism, climbing, outdoor culture, it is it is like a quite a, you know the language is language of conquest, language is like you know, ch you know, challenging the the outdoors, defeating the mountain. Um, is there a cultural gap to, to sort of address there as well, like in terms of those different approaches? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, just like <laughs> the language of conquest is an easy way to trigger people in my community, uh, at least in relating to the mountains. And so when I first... Um, of course. But I, when I first entered the space and like, you know, climbing mountains and doing that thing. I, I adopted a lot of that language too, kind of unknowing, and then began um, evaluating the, uh, yeah, evaluating that language as well. And, and part of that I almost felt was uh, informed by 
just learning about the like the pre pre contact mountaineering culture that existed before. You know, there's a there's um uh there's a Oh geez, there's one of our sacred peaks, which is the easternmost. It's called uh, Cisnagini. Um, the highest point in there is called Blanca Peak in English, um, but it's you know fourteen thousand three hundred foot mountain and you know massive prominence. And um, uh, but the first sort of expedition up to like claim the first ascent found a rock structure up top. Um, <laughs> so people were going up there before. Right. Um, but yeah, I think that gave, wow. I think that gave some perspective, at least in in kind of giving me permission to do these things because um, you know people were doing it before and people were interested and even our some of our ceremonial songs talk about climbing the mountain. Um, so I I just figured you know there's a way in which we can adapt these things that we're doing and combine it with these sports now and make it relevant and that's in large part just I don't know in the way of like kind of I don't want to say. Uh, talking back to the colonial and con- colonialism and conquest. I mean, cause in many ways that's how people, um, get their entry into getting in the outdoors. And I don't want to alienate people and like deny their experience, but I also want to like provide sort of a different way to see things. Um, and people can make their own decision about how they choose to relate to them. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I guess it's context, isn't it? You know, like that, the, 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 the sort of, that i keep saying traditional and I, I mean western traditional like as you know like this this kind of like outdoor tradition it obviously it's just one one way of of doing it and as you rightly say you know a lot of it, it i mean it did come from colonialism it did come from like the it was very linked to especially again like in, in my country you know like those early expeditions very very linked to like national identity like the empire colonialism and equally in your country you know, there's, I'm, I'm sure like a lot of, a lot of like westward, westward movement and exploration is, is, is quite a delicate subject given the history and given like the, you know, the way that that directly affected native populations. So, but I, I totally understand what you're saying because you can't, it's not about like right or wrong, is it? It's just about sort of contextualizing in a way that more people can find a way in, isn't it? You know, which rather than saying like, there's one way to do it, you've got to do it this way. And you can't, you can't do it in that Western way. You need to do it in this other way. Um, and, and from looking at the work that you do, yeah, it seems like you're really good at striking that balance of, of like basically being inclusive saying, you know, like that there's more than one way and that's fine. And there's no, it doesn't mean one way is right. One way is wrong. Is that, is that a big, is is that one of the ways that you purposely approach oh, it? Oh, very much so. I mean, I think, um, you know, I always I always have to reflect. You know, you don't you, you know, you don't know what you don't know. You know, and uh, uh, especially in as an educator, I, I you can't. I don't know. It like chastising people for ignorance is like the worst thing you can do for encouraging them to learn, and um, and it's uh, such an easy way to turn, turn people off from like experiencing different worldviews. Um, you know, part of that was, I went to, a, um, uh, this international high school here in New Mexico called the United World College. It actually started in England. Um, but there's this funny, <laughs> uh, there's this funny photo of Prince Charles out in the middle of, you know, nowhere, in New Mexico, um, you know, opening the school in like in the early, right. the early eighties. And, but that school was really formative for right. me um, because it was there was 250 students from 94 countries <clears throat> and so as a young person 
this was something that uh, I really, I don't know. I mean, that sort of experience with diversity such a, at an early age was such a, a, a powerful thing. And at least understanding that there's mo there's not right or wrong, but there's like so many ways to see the world. Um, and I think it gave me a lot of respect for that. So in the work that I move moving forward, I always try to approach, you know, everyone that I work with and the context that I work with, with that understanding that like everyone's carrying their own story and their own perspective. And I think far too often <clears throat> what I've seen is just sort of, it's so easy just to categorize and just throw people in a box <laughs> and for like, oh, they're white, they're native and like their experiences are vastly different. Yeah. And I just, I don't agree with that. I almost say you know, there's, there's a lot more that ties us together than drives us apart. And what makes us different is makes it, makes it interesting. Yeah, I guess, I guess that can come from a misguided place, you know, in a, in a lot of ways to try and categorize in that way, which is something else to be, to be mindful of when you try to walk this territory really, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I mean, I was really interested in that Instagram post that you put up actually <laughs> the other day about, um, you put up a post a couple of days ago about, you know, being mindful of people that are, that are using positions for own, their own personal gain. You know, this like, well, I think the phrase you like excess virtue signaling maybe yeah. was a phrase that you use. Virtuous victim. Um, <laughs> what, what, what was, what was that? Where was that coming from? Yeah. yeah right. That's the phrase. Yeah. What, where was that coming from? Cause that was a really interesting, yeah. really interesting take on that. You know, cause one of the things I've, I've been seeing, um, you know, online is, it's so easy to, there's a lot of, I would say a lot of influencers, both, you know, from the um, BIPOC community, black, indigenous people of color and the white, you know, that are, are taking these really strong moral stands on social issues. And in some ways, also being incredibly toxic. Um, and also not inclusive and creating, you know, I, I would say recreating um, sort of systems of power that almost feel like um, I'm not Christian myself, but like I have a lot of family that are, but almost these systems of power of shame and guilt and things that like are not a part of me culturally, but almost feel like this extension of it. You know, I think in, especially in this country, the discussion around race is really fraught right now. And I think there's a big strive for people to have purity within the movement. And so this sort of purifying process that people are going through is just, you know, outwardly pretty toxic. And one of the ways in which I've seen that manifest is, um, you know, people start demanding um, compensation for their time for posting, you know, their Google searches about diversity on their stories. And I just, <laughs> you know, having been an academic myself, it's like, and also understanding that there's multiple ways to understand and do this work. And this might not be the best context. And like, if you're just posting your Google searches, then like, and then demanding payment from people. It's just like, I, I, you know, I, one, I think one of the things that comes to mind is like, okay, what are the values at play here is that we're, we're commodifying our time and interaction and our social interactions with each other. And I think, um, I think one of the things that I see in that is it's given the stance that's being taken by some of, of the folks, you know, they very much care about what they care about, but you know, the the one thing is that if you're going to critique capitalism and then commodify your own personal reaction interactions with each other like that is a value conflict um and you know the other is that i think uh 
it's it's almost I think sometimes I get a little frustrated too because there's a little bit of elitism about what's the proper language and you know um, <laughs> shaming people when they don't know and and you know I think broadly you know when we look at how do we operate as a society like elitism is not a I I'm I disdain academia because of the elitism and I think I see it in these power structures being recreated around language and. Um, ways of knowing and ways of doing things that are like striving for a purity that I just think is is going to drive a lot of people away. Like at the end of the day, I think we have a big um, obligation to, um, uh, you know, as as unfortunate as it is, like one of my roles is as a Native person is like I have a role to educate. And, um, you know, I'm going to do that in a way that's approachable. I'm going to do that in a way that's free. Um, and... And that's going to yield greater benefits for my community. So, you know, in terms of that particular post, um, you know, that's why I don't ask for money and I don't, you know, demand things of people. And if someone, you know, writes me something that isn't like using the correct terminology or language, I'm not going to shame that. I'm going to meet that person where they're at and, you know, have that conversation. And my hope from that is that maybe we both will take another step closer in, in, in the right direction. Um, but I, I just think, um, I think what I've seen around this is that it's, it's become its own sort of, um, growth industry and economy. And I just, I don't like it. I, I don't think diversity should be treated like that. So <laughs> that's my moral stake in the ground. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I found it really fascinating. It's why I bring it up because like, like you say, you end up creating replacement power structures, <laughs> you know, given, the, and, and, and you're supposed to be about dismantling those power structures and those barriers. I do, I do wonder if it is, is it quite a tendency of, of the left in a lot of ways? Um, and it is, it is an interesting question, isn't it? You know, like the theme of this podcast is activism. And one of the other themes that comes through a lot from the conversations is, is this idea um, of the fact that if you're going to, if you're going to, actually change things like whether you like it or not you are going to have to appeal to to people who aren't as as knowledgeable or committed to the to the cause whatever the cause might be as you are and if you if you police them to a ridiculous degree like that is alienating that is gonna that is gonna defeat the object of your you know purported goal isn't it so it, i think it's a really interesting interesting point i guess i guess why i brought it up is because it was i've I've not seen anyone call it out as you did quite so um you know that that was that was really upfront and and also like interesting enough you were citing like academic research around that right like and linking it which was linking it to sort of traits of sort of narcissism and and yeah which was also kind of fascinating well i you know i think <laughs> I had a few people reach out to me. It's like, well, you're one of the few people that can say that without getting completely dragged, you know, online. Um, and I think to speaking to what you're saying, like my, my family politically is really interesting. Like I have my dad's side of the, my dad's like, you know, green party left as the left that they can get. He's not super dogmatic about it, but um, you know, I do have super conservative religious families, like folks, you know, like I would say were Trumpers before Trump was even a thing. Um, and I think what I've seen, you know, broadly is that, you know, in terms of inspiring movements, you can do it by fear. You can do it by inspiring people. 
And, you know, I think the, the, the thing by fear, um, I don't think it's long lasting and, and especially now around race issues and inequality and all of that. I think, you know, there's a lot of people that are scared of saying anything or having an opinion or saying anything that deviates from the norm. And, um, I, I don't know how long you can maintain that, uh, that sort of coalition when you have folks internally that are just afraid about the social repercussions and um, yeah. And, you know, I've gone through um, a number of online call outs myself um, and <laughs> they're toxic, you know, they're just, you know, I got a, I got a threat of violence. I had to report to the police and it, this was like around diversity. stuff. I'm just like, this is crazy. <laughs> this is not, you know, this is not, we can't cannibalize ourselves and like try to do this for this movement. And, you know, and I think at the end of the day is like, even when we have, when I began seeing folks kind of proclaiming, you know, sort of righteousness and justice and like these things in a very like self-righteous way online, I, that's when a red flag goes up for me because I saw my very, very conservative Baptist relatives do that. And, and their message was very different, but their conviction and belief in what they were saying was very much the same. And in the way that that played out was also very toxic. So, and personally, there's that sort of trigger is that, it, um, but you know, on any, in any sort of um, group where there's a really strong belief set, you can get these sort of behaviors that are very toxic as well. And I think we have to name that and say like, this is not the society we, I want to live in. Um, and I don't want people to be afraid of trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Well, as you, as you mentioned, like it's that you use the word fraught and that there is a change happening in your country right now. I mean, we're talking the day after, is it Deb Harlan just was named secretary of the interior, um, which is obviously like huge, huge shift. And there is, you know, to obviously literal and metaphorical transition going on in the States right now. And there's going to have to be, some kind of reproachment isn't there you know that the, the, there's gonna have to be some kind of meeting in the middle like it doesn't feel like it's sustainable like the 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 kind of enmity that's been shown on both sides so yeah it 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 feels like that will be necessary like the the approach that you're talking about is that so one of my questions on that subject would be is that why you use humor quite a lot because obviously in your you know, I follow your Insta and, you know, I mentioned the memes earlier. It's a lot of memes, a lot of gags, and it's great. Like, is that, is that one of the approaches that, is that, is that a conscious thing to try and, to try and talk about those, those, those issues in it, like, you know, in a, in a funny way, like in a way that kind of also sends up sometimes the ridiculousness of the, of the discourse that you can, you can see around these conversations. Yeah. You know, that's so, uh, yeah, definitely. And it was a very deliberate choice, like basically when the pandemic started, um, you know, because at the, it, if you look through my past posts, a lot of it's just, you know, outdoor stuff and talking about public lands or climate change and blah, 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 you know. Um, and increasingly, I just saw the rhetoric and the sort of grandstanding around all of these issues just get turned up to 11 and then people are fighting and I, you know, I... I got sick of it and I just, I just, I, I started posting memes in large part just to, I don't know, just kind of break the tension around the lo initial lockdown and people liked it. And I think part of it is because sometimes depending on what, you know, 
who you follow and, you know, sort of what your crowd and scene looks like, it can be pretty stressful <laughs> to be online. And, you know, I've had to, I've had to, you know, and in many ways I'm, I'm just kind of having an outward channel and, and not really trying to take too much in. Um, but, you know, in part that comes from where I am as a native person in Navajo culture, we often use, uh, uh, humor to, diffuse tension and we often use it in situations where it's you know really serious and um uh really important topics being discussed you know there will be laughing and um and i think right now um especially um around diversity issues i i've i've kind of noticed a lot of white my, my white folks and white friends are just really nervous about saying anything and even coming to me like they're like, you know, there's a lot of hesitancy of like, not, they don't want to say the wrong thing and blah, blah, blah. And I just like, I don't personally, I don't like that. And I think for the group of folks that I try to support, you know, on, and it's just, you know, I'm always a resource. I'm always willing to talk and it's not going to be a judgmental space. But I think, um, you know, adding to all of this, like I, I at the end of the day, I, I really see the value of building allies and the folks that share our values and care about the things that we do and, you know, or maybe just see the things that we do, you know? And, um, yeah, so it's, it, that's what it's turned into. And I don't know how long I'll keep doing it. Maybe until once everyone's vaccinated and we can get through this, but, um, you know, I just, I think the, the thing was, is I remember seeing some report early on and saying like one in four people are expressing, experiencing depression. And that's like, that's crazy. Um, so it's my small public service that is pretty, <laughs> pretty dumb. Yeah. I mean, but it's, it, it is, it is, I'm not going to, you know, effective is a bit of a dickish word to use about it, but because, because it's, it makes it sound like, you know, like a tool for activism as if it's like, but you know what I mean though? It is, it is, it is helpful for people, I think, because like you say, um, if you are, mindful of trying to um you know be politically correct like make sure you're being respectful it can people can find it challenging and people can feel like they that you know they they, they might be causing offense or whatever and i think i think like just you know some some of it just is funny like you know some of those human interactions can like there is humor in that and that's a good thing to that's a good thing to to highlight and and I think people do find it helpful, which you, you can see, right? Because, I mean, end of the day, if nothing else, there's, there's, a, there's quite a rich seam of comedy, <laughs> a lot of it, isn't it, you know? Which is what, what obviously you're kind of mining. Yeah, I think I just some of the, you know, interactions I just see are really awkward. And I think that awkwardness just lends itself so much to humor. One of the other things I was going to ask you about is the you know you've got the two areas that you that you you mentioned earlier you've got the the day job the prof, like as as a professor and then you've got native um native outdoors which has been like sounds like it's really progressed from from the original genesis of being an instagram account do you find that because those two platforms or opportunities are so different like you can consciously choose different ways of exploring issues um for for both of those like for 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 your day job and for native outdoors can you can you kind of look at it and think okay well you know these are giving me opportunities to sort of look at different different things in a different way and speak to different people yeah i mean one of the um you know i think being in academia you know a lot of my i'm gonna throw my colleagues under the bus a little bit here but you know a lot of folks in academia don't spend a lot of time outside and 
also just don't have have don't have many interactions with people that are outside of academia so it becomes <laughs> it becomes this like i don't know it becomes this hive mind in a way that i think is not productive to like trying to think you know you, you know trying to find unique thoughts or insights about the challenging world that we live in um you know my work in that sphere is around natural resource policy and management with indigenous peoples like that's energy that's climate change that's recreation um, and I, you know, one of the things that I think, especially now that I've seen under Trump and the very populist time that we live in, um, is that there's a distrust of experts. There's a distrust of, of, of sort of knowledge that's being produced from academia. And I don't see that as a bad thing. I think that there needs to be that pushback on academia for, you know, assuming that they know everything and anything about the world, which is not true, but, um, you know, one of the things that I would say the academic side allows me to do is like, I have the training to like do technical policy analysis, understand these dynamics. Um, but the part of the training that I did not get from that is how to communicate that to the broader world, how to make it relatable, how to make it actionable for people. And that's where I think the outdoor media side of that's really important. So we've made a, you know, the Cody film, in, in, in part of that is, is expressing indigenous worldviews on how they relate to the environment. That's a very, I mean, very much of the, the thread of that, that film, the theme of that film came from an academic paper. Um, uh, it's called this indigenous peoplehood model laying, you know, basically that's where it came from. The other, the other lane that, right. the other lane that I've worked on around that is, um, we made a film called Welcome to Gwich'ajé, which is about, um, oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska and the Gwich'in people's connection to caribou that calve there. Um, that, you know, that was a film that we made, uh, 2018. It, you know, got pushed out through Patagonia channels. It went to a bunch of film festivals. It eventually ended up in the hands of, uh, the chairman of the house natural resources committee here in the United States. And, um, he watched it, was inspired. And he's like, you know what, we need this guy to come testify on you know what he knows and and i think one of the things that i've um uh really seen in the power of outdoor media and film is that it can be inspiring and it can change policy because you know quite honestly yeah i could have easily written a paper about the arctic refuge published it in a journal and it would have sat for years if it was ever cited you know and what 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 eventually happened was a through line between um, you know, creating this film, you know, working with the community, creating this film, and then actual policy change. And I think that's been a that's been a that's been a line that I've had to draw on for some of my colleagues in the academy. And I remember one of the one of the pieces of feedback was, I was like, wow, wonderful job on that testimony to Congress. They must have been really impressed by your body of literature that you've published. <laughs> and I just, I I remember hearing that and just laughing, um, because. Because it wasn't, um, you know, that clear, that wasn't, that's what, that isn't what it led. That's not how it happened. Um, <laughs> so I guess at the end of the day, you know, the, the two, the two inform each other. I think there is a, there is a way to, ins you know, film and media inspires my students and um, the academic side can help make the stories a little deeper on the other side. That's really interesting because obviously... I, I had Mario from Protect Our Winters on here a couple of months ago. I mean, it's a really great, you know, it's a really obvious example of that, of like the, of using, of like very consciously using that platform and that outlet to try and change policy. I mean, that's obviously what Protect Our Winters is. 
Um, but yeah, like you, as you describe, it is it is a legitimate and very successful approach now, isn't it? To 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 using the to to trying to affect change on on that level. Um, perhaps not in Europe so much. I, I would say I think that I think it's much more localized. There's, it's more more of a local issue thing. Because um, I was just really struck by the ambition of that. Again, to take the protect our winners example, you know, like the the campaign they put out during the election, which is something that I talked about on that episode. You know, it was just you know nothing less than we're going to try and swing some states. I mean, that is that's that's a pretty ambitious goal for an you know to to use the the medium of action sports to to do that. You know, that is that is like a a, a powerful powerful bit of activism right there to try and achieve that isn't it so yeah it's interesting so that's a conscious that must be great then to the, the fact that you can you can like connect the two and and see that see that happening so is there anything to take that to its kind of logical next step then like what are your ambitions for that approach i mean i have my own you know climbing and skiing objectives and things that i'm working towards um you know one would be uh, to get those done. Um, but, uh, you know, I think in, in combining the two, um, I, I really, I really, I really want to be able to train students and ac other academics about how to communicate this knowledge in a way that's approachable and isn't just like sit in a journal article or behind a paywall, which most journals do. Um, and, you know, how do you make this, this information relevant and actionable to the broader public? And it's, it's totally possible. It takes work, you know, it takes a special skill set. It takes, you know, being able to relate to other people and what they know and they, what they don't know. And, um, but, you know, not at the end of the day, just meeting people where they're at and not talking, talking down to them. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, it's almost like an unlearning of what we've been taught in this space. So I, I see there's an opportunity to transform academia and one connecting, um, the work and research that we do, um, to a, a broader audience. I, I see it in my students, you know, the students that come in and I show them, share these films or, you know, in this last class I had, um, uh, Forrest Shearer come and talk about his, snowboard activism and climate change. I had Cody come and talk about what it meant to be an, you know, a mentor to Connor now, um, in, in sort of supporting a native athlete in that space. And, and it makes it real, it makes it relatable. And I think one of the things that I really like about doing my classes, you know, a lot of the people that I'm bringing to my class don't have college educations, you know, don't have those college degrees. And I actually like that. Um, because, you know, the, the, the smartest people in my own life have been um, people without degrees, like my grandfather, for example. He was a traditional medicine man and um, didn't know how to speak. He didn't speak English. He only spoke Navajo. And, you know, by Western standards at the time when he was growing up, he'd be considered an idiot. But, you know, the time I got to spend with him, he was just, you know, he knew so much about the mountains. He knew the mountains so well. And, you know, what I see in a lot of the pro athletes is almost this reflection of my grandfather and, and um, you know, their deep knowledge of the mountains. And I, I, I want to share that with students is that that knowledge and expertise can manifest in different ways. And we have to have immense respect for people, regardless of that, and recognize where those talents are, and where they're, where they're at. And um, so that's been you know, my sort of way of knocking down the academy from the inside. But, you know, on the outdoor, on the outdoor side, I really see, um, 
uh, at least in supporting these athletes in their the things that they're advocating for with you know just just you know, you know being a resource for them and like providing them with education resources that further activates what they're trying to do and and that's kind of where that that sort of intermediary place is where I really um I don't know kind of getting it closer to be making better activists um making more inspired students I think at the end of the day is is really what I'm trying to do with the two platforms well, it's like you say, though, it's, it's, it's about communicating, isn't it? What, you know, it's what it comes down to. Like, if you, like, part of the challenge of activism, part of the challenge of, of, of solving problems, solving issues, especially issues on the scale that we face right now, is, is an ability to communicate them easily. And traditional leaders, as you alluded to earlier, aren't very good at that right now. Um, they sit, they're good at polarizing people and they're good at, um creating conflict but in terms of resolution um you know you need to take your leaders and your good communicators where you find them right now don't you and and as you say like the 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 field of academia is one sort of classic area where that yeah there's obviously the substance of the work can take place there but often the way it's communicated is is lacking isn't it you know one of the one of the ways that I've been trying to, I published a paper, I don't know, March. Um, I, I had some, um, I think it was an Instagram story. I just shared the results and like I had <laughs> to artificially pump up my view count on the journal article. I had everyone, you know, people that watch the story, you know, basically go download it. But the other, the other part of that was just um, making it relatable. And I think in that moment, I just realized like, you know, the way I, the way I can write as an academic is so, it's its own thing. I don't like writing like that. Um, but it's a way, it's sort of like, it's how you have to communicate in that space. The outlet that I have found where I've found a lot of opportunity, um, is I've wrote, wrote a number of articles for, um, the Alpinist, some on the expeditions that we've done. Um, and and that way it's been really like, you know, the Alpinist is a really great magazine for writing, but that was, you know, that's taken my um, sort of ability to, especially in the outdoor space, to communicate to a broader audience to another level. I mean, those the editors there are phenomenal and they, I definitely needed a lot of support as a recovering academic than writing into um, adventure writing. Um, but I, th I find the two are super complementary. And tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing for the for the Honold Foundation, because this is this is another kind of. Um, I mean, God, it sounds like you're you're wearing plenty of hats, but um, yeah. So what you what what's your involvement there? So I'm a board member, um, and uh, in large part, what I I brought to the table was I I worked a previous previous life. I worked in the Department of Energy here, and I worked um, in deploying. Uh, renewable projects, renewable, you know, wind and solar, largely, um, to native communities in Alaska in the lower 48. And um, I joined the foundation when we, you know, basically had to vote to adopt the bylaws, like basically from the beginning. And uh, um, so I was the first board member after Alex and Mari Birdwell. Um, and, you know, in, in large part, I... I, I brought two things to the table. One is, is I come from the communities that we serve. Um, 
and I have an expertise in natural resource policy and renewable energy and grant making and, um, but also a connection to the outdoor industry as well. So it was kind of this, you know, at the time it was like, you know, very good. And, and so I've been working on supporting the organization, um, on, um, one, the grant program. So we've, we gave out close to a million dollars in grants or a little bit above that this past year, but you know, how to do an open call, solicit proposals, review the proposals, that sort of thing. Um, but then also just strategic advice and like figuring out, you know, how do we build our board capacity? Who do we bring on to support this mission further? And um, also just being a network for, you know, um, potential grant grantees. And um, so, yeah, that's been that's been an amazing part of the job. And just at least um, in many ways, it feels like sort of the synergy between the two, you know, the two uh realities that I've been living in, in, in working in natural resource policy, and then also the outdoor industry, it seems like this like, natural fit for at least that work. So that's been fun. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I always have to explain, you know, yeah, it's the free solo guy, he gives a third of his income away to support solar projects. Uh, and people get it once I say that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, certainly... He's certainly walking the walk, isn't he? Yeah. No doubt about that. Um, so we, I mentioned earlier, and I, I, you know, you were posting about it on Insta. Um, it is Deb, Deb Harland, right? Is that how you say yeah, it? Yeah, Deb Harland, yep. Was, was just appointed Secretary of the Interior. Um, can, can you explain why that's so significant? Yeah. Um, you know, I think I look at Deb. Deb is about my mom's age. And my mom, like Deb, um, were some of the few Native women in our community that have achieved, um, you know, higher education degrees. And, and a lot of that's just, you know, no opportunities uh, or not the same opportunities, institutions that were pretty toxic to them as people. And, you know, my mom talked about, she went to... Um, she was in a boarding school and like one of the things that would happen there is that if they spoke, if they spoke Navajo, they would get their mouth washed out with soap. Um, and that was part to just try to erase their culture. And, and so, you know, I think despite that, that sort of history to see, you know, Deb, especially be able to one become, be elected, um, and then to be selected to be the Secretary of Interior, which is a massive, massive agency within the federal government. I mean, it oversees, um, you know, a huge chunk of the federal public lands, national parks. But the other element of that is that it also oversees things like the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is this official entity that, you know, is a sort of liaison between the U.S. government and Native nations. And um, so... Yeah, I mean, I think for I think that backstory is something that a lot of people don't realize where people are coming from and how much higher of a mountain it was to climb for, um, you know, women like Deb and my mom. Um, and but, you know, I think the other thing is uh, it, it gives some hopefully an opening in thinking about how do we do um, federal Indian policy different. 
um, you know, how do we actually make it where it is a government-to-government relationship and not just the federal government telling Native nations what to do or what not to do. And, you know, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of um, support for her candidacy. And there's also, you know, she wasn't she wasn't the only Native person in the running. And I think... Um, uh, I think that, you know, I almost see that as a success is that she wasn't the only, she wasn't the only native person, but she was definitely the one that had the best qualifications for the job. And that almost feels like a win to be able to have a choice. Um, and it gives me hope, um, at least in what, what could be possible. Um, but I think one of the things that I, I'm beginning to shift gears and think about now is like having worked in the federal government and having worked on that side of the house, um, um, you know, one of the things that I like then hope people understand is that things are not going to change as quickly as they want them to. And there's going to be some disappointment with how slow federal policy takes to implement and how long and how many setbacks there are. And, and uh, you know, it's like, it's like uh, turning an aircraft carrier. I don't know how else to explain it. And, and it just takes a lot of work. And I think there's going to be, I think especially in the activist community and the native community, there's going to be, I'm worried that people are going to be then let down with that progress. And I hope it doesn't translate into saying that, you know, Deb Holland let us down or whatever. It's just, she's working within a system that just takes a lot, a lot to change. And I, I, I think some of my work in the next few years is just going to be, art, you know, communicating and articulating that, you know, we need to like, give her the runway to be successful um, because she has, a, you know, one, she has to undo a lot of terrible policies, which is its own lengthy process and then implementing new ones, which is its own lengthy process. It takes time and we have to be patient, but we have to continue to show up like we have been. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the fact, so, so the symbolism of the appointment is, is, is pretty evident. Is that, do, do you feel hopeful that it will, it will be able to, could, create like lasting change and impact i i think with any i think the symbolism of the appointment is is a lasting change and impact that's important um i'm i think there will be things like the return of the bears Ears national monument that will be very important i think there will be other um substantive changes towards tribes that will be very different i don't know what there will, there will be right now but um yeah, I think I think there will be. I just I just uh, I just know that Deb is going to get a lot of um, uh, unfair scrutiny and and sort of uh, people that don't agree with her politics breathing down her back because she's she is a woman and she is a native woman too. And uh, so you know, I I hope at the end of the day, like one of the things that I'm just really I, I, she's going to choose a good team. I know this and. Um, yeah, I, I think I to say what will change and what will happen. I mean, it's going to be like minutia of changing federal lease rates on Indian lands and, you know, having a different process for, you know, environmental review of cultural resources. I mean, just these little like tweaks and changes um, in terms of large substantive change. That's going to have to come from Congress, because at the end of the day, these agencies only they can only operate within the sort of sandbox that Congress has created for them. And so, um, you know, the large changes on things like co-management of federal lands at the end of the day, like between indigenous peoples and the federal government, that's going to have to come from an act of Congress. And I think that's where 
um, I, I kind of see, you know, large sweeping transformations. Depend, it really depends on what happens in January with our last set of elections in, in Georgia. But um, I'm hopeful. I know there's there's some like tweaky changes within the in the Department of Energy or Department of Interior that will make really big changes for tribes as well. But they might not be as flashy as appointing her. Um, but they, you know, she will be leading those changes as well. Uh, you know, as as I think I mentioned to you over the chats we've been having, um, this you know the theme of this is activism, and a qu- a question I quite often ask guests who, um, you know, have, have established a career for themselves in in their own space, like and and are able to influence the issues that are important to them, is how, what what advice would you have for somebody listening to this who is, you know, inspired but doesn't really know where to start? The way to make it sustainable in the long term is that activism can easily be a path to burnout. And I've seen that in a lot of my friends and colleagues. Um, I've definitely experienced some of that myself from time to time. Um, but I think what, what keeps it going for me is is it's personal, it's related to my own life, and it's something that's just... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's something that intersects with what I'm doing every day. And so like, I'm spending time outside every day. And so like, why would I not, why would I, um, uh, not spend time on advocating for the protection of these spaces in addition to doing this? I mean, it's very much like, it doesn't feel separate from my life in that way, but it's also associated with something that like gives me pleasure, gives me happiness. And, um, you know, I guess in terms of that cortisol and dopamine and serotonin, I always like to say they kind of mellow, they like mellow each other out when, you know, we're talking about climate change and then we go skiing. Like it's like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would say at the end of the day, that's a big one. And the other was, you know, in, in doing activist work and, and in doing and being in the space, criticism and um, negative feedback are inevitable. And um uh, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing what you're doing and that feedback, um, you know, at the end of the day, you can find more people that are, are supporting what you're doing than are against. And, um, you know, it's just surrounding yourself with folks that are, um, in that support network is really at the end of the day, what's gotten me through. So there you go. That was me and Len and I hope you enjoyed it. I've put Len's links in the description of this podcast, but you can find him at Len Nessifer Instagram and Natives Outdoors. And while you're there, make sure you check out that episode of Cody Townsend's The 50 I mentioned, which is really, really great. That series also is great. You can also find my profile on Instagram at We Look Sideways. There we go. Thanks for listening and for supporting Type 2 generally. I release new episodes of Type 2 every month or so through my usual looking sideways channel you can subscribe via spotify apple podcasts all the usual podcast purveyors you can also head over to my website www.wearelookingsideways.com where you'll find the entire type 2 back catalog and the entire archive of my main looking sideways podcast too i'm almost at 150 episodes with some of the biggest names in action sports and other related endeavors so i'm pretty sure you'll find some stuff you'll be interested in there all right Nice one. Thanks for listening. See you next time.